We are dedicating season two, episode one to hashtag justice for Julius. And Julius Jones has been on death row in Oklahoma after being wrongly convicted of murder. He has been on death row for 20 years for a crime he did not commit. To find out more about this, go to www.justiceforjuliusjones.com and you can watch the three-part series that explains the entire case and why we believe that he is innocent. Finally, along with many others, including but not limited to the Milwaukee Bucks, LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard, are extremely disappointed in the decision in Kenosha, Wisconsin, to not charge the officers involved in the Jacob Blake shooting. The marginalization of African-American men and women must stop. Police reform, which has started to change in some areas in this country, must continue across America so that excessive force, racial profiling, and systemic racism ends. We are extremely happy that after the results in Georgia have put the Democrats in control of the Senate, and in the case of a tie, the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, could vote in favor of policy changes that we believe will help in some of the things that we discuss typically in all of our podcasts that deal with the major issues facing us in the United States. And now back to the podcast for Dr. J and Coach K. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome first-time listeners and returners to the Sports Deli, where we believe that less is more. The acronym LESS stands for Leadership, Equality, Education, Social, and Sport Issues. With each episode, thoughtful conversations and insightful guests are always tops on the menu. The Sports Deli is sponsored by SportRx, the leader in sport prescription eyewear. Give them a buzz at 888-831-5817 and let them know the Sports Deli sent you for your 10% discount. Or if you order online, you can go to sportrx.com and enter the code DELI10. That's D-E-L-I-1-0. If you have any questions, you can email them at info at sportrx.com or there's a live chat feature online and you can talk with a live optician. And what separates SportRx from all the other companies out there, not only do they have live opticians that you're going to be speaking with, their knowledge about your specific needs is hands down second to none. Whether you're a, a, a regular golfer, you're a hack, or you're a pro golfer, you know whether you're playing uh, high school or college uh, football or you're a professional athlete, uh, you're out walking with your kid and your dogs, Whatever your needs are for men, women, or kids, uh, they will take care of you. So again, give them a call at 888-831-5817 or go online at sportrx.com. If you want to send us an email, you can always do so to thesportsdeli at gmail.com and you can DM us on Instagram at Mike Hootner and on Twitter at Michael Hootner. So grab your favorite deli sandwich or bagel and your favorite beverage, and let's do this together in the Sports Deli. And if this is your first trip into the Sports Deli, we encourage you to listen to the next 10 minutes as we will chronicle the co-host, Dr. J and myself, Hootie Hoot, with an introduction, 
uh, in terms of our background and who we are and why we started this whole thing. And if you're a returner, feel free to fast forward to the 11 minute mark and we will continue with today's Sports Deli podcast. Dr. J hails to us from Maryland. He currently resides in upstate New York. He's a proud graduate of Bethesda Chevy Chase High School in Maryland. He's a sports junkie and sports fanatic by his own admission. He loves his Washington teams, the Wizards, the Washington football team, the Nationals and Capitals. I remember in college, he used to brag all the time about how the Washington football team had a 41-year waiting list. And maybe they're back on track after reaching the playoffs this year in 2020. He loves politics and is definitely the reason I became interested in politics because he's just as passionate and fanatical about politics as he is about sports, probably largely uh, as a result of his parents' um, influence on him. His dad was a lawyer, and his mom worked for the government uh, her entire life, and uh, I just loved learning from him because I didn't really know much about it uh, before I got to Goucher, and so I have John to thank for... um, why I'm so interested and and passionate about politics, especially since my college days. He's working on his EDD in higher administration. He's got a master's degree from the University of South Carolina. As a freshman at the University of Kentucky, he won third place in a Rick Pitino lookalike contest. He can recognize the face of just about any athlete, and he has been photographed with the likes of Dick Vitale, Jimmy V, Rick Pitino, Jerry Tarkanian, and Steve Spurrier. Oh, yeah, and of course, yours truly several times, Mike Hootner, Hootie Hoot, your co-host here in the Sports Deli. He loves golf, even though he thinks he's better than he is, but he is willing to play any course in the world. He is fearless in that way. Just let him know the time and place, and he will be there. He's played in Scotland, Mexico, Spain, the United States, and other countries, and he's played the Old Course, Torrey Pines, The Ocean Course, Pebble Beach, and Doral. And as for myself, Hootie Hoot, I hail to you from Detroit, Michigan. I'm a proud graduate of Oak Park High School. I love my sports teams, the Pistons, the Lions, the Red Wings, and the Detroit Tigers. I had amazing friends growing up uh, on Leslie Street there in Oak Park. I played five sports in high school, uh, including baseball and tennis, basketball, cross-country, and soccer. And a, a quick blurb about my, my high school experience. Uh, you know, I went from a private school to a public school in fifth grade, and that's when I really started to uh, feel like I was able to come out of my shell and really be comfortable in my own skin. And uh, mad props to everybody that was a part of my life in Oak Park for the first 18 years, from Pepper to Roosevelt to uh, high school, uh, from Mr. Sternberg in middle school in particular. He was tough, but he was tough on everyone. You know, Mr. Golding, my seventh grade history teacher, who has been an advocate my entire life and a a wonderful support system for me, to all my friends and acquaintances uh, uh, in that Oak Park school system. You know, I know it wasn't easy for a lot of people, but you know, during those years between fifth grade and twelfth grade, uh, that's when I felt most comfortable uh, being who I was, and I really came out of my shell. And 
uh, I just I just love my my experience. The other thing I want to mention as far as sports goes, you know, I played junior varsity um, uh, as a junior for both baseball and basketball, which you know I got a lot of flack for it um, because people you know were like, why would you even waste your time? And you know, I I just wanted to play. I didn't care if I was on varsity or junior varsity. I I just wanted a shot, and uh, I appreciated uh, the opportunity. Uh, to play junior varsity baseball and basketball as a junior, and then I, I ended up making the varsity, both uh, for the baseball and and basketball teams as a senior, and uh, you know that that helped me to you know continue my dream to play college college basketball. So um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that I got cut three times, and when I talk to kids, um, I always mention this because. Uh, a lot of times you can learn more about yourself from loss and from getting cut uh, and trying to prove a coach wrong than you can from being given a handout or simply making a team because you know someone or because you're tall or what, whatever. Uh, and I got cut in, in, uh, in middle school. I got cut in high school as a sophomore. And I got cut in college my first year. And every time... The year after that, because I was so motivated and I had a why, and that why was whether I was too white, I was the only white guy on the varsity team in high school on my basketball team, or people said I was too short at 5'7", or whatever the case may, may be. But I had a why. You know, My dad committed suicide when I was nine years old. Uh, I had a lot of reasons to be upset and, and find intrinsic motivation uh, to prove everybody wrong and say F the world. So for those of you out there that are listening that maybe have gotten cut, you know, maybe have had bad experiences or some really bad things happen to you, um, just know that there's a lot of people out there just like you that have gone through hardships and uh, uh, you know, had to, to battle adversity uh, during their lifetime. And you know, that's truly what's going to be a test of your character is if you can get through those things because if you're not a part of the solution, you're a part of the problem. I graduated in 1987 and made my way west where I attended San Diego Mesa College where I played uh, college basketball for two years for the Hall of Fame coach James Mulvihall. I learned to play tennis uh, at a higher level from the legendary professor at San Diego Mesa, uh, Dr. Reeves, who really helped me with my backhand in particular and creating more spin uh, on my uh, forehand. And as a result of that, when I transferred to Goucher College and played on the first team in the history of the men's basketball team there in 1990, I also, as a senior, played uh, intercollegiate tennis. I played five singles and uh, two doubles and was all uh, conference in doubles uh, with my uh, doubles partner, Scott. And uh, from there, I went to start my college coaching career. I got my master's degree from Frostburg State University. I coached for an amazing coach who I learned a tremendous amount from, not only on the court, but off the court, uh, from Oscar Lewis. Um, and uh, I have a beautiful daughter, uh, Amelia. I'm a life coach. I also uh, privately coach golf and tennis. I do a lot of private professional skills training. In the sport of basketball, I've sent players overseas. Um, I coached men for 15 years, and I'm on my 14th year on the women's side. 
um, both at the collegiate level and I currently coach at a low-income first-generation high school, the Proy School in La Jolla, California for girls basketball. Um, unlike John, I've never been married and uh, I've also been a college professor since 1992. So I know I speak for Dr. J that when we first started this endeavor, it was really to talk sports, and it's turned into much more than that. And if you haven't uh, listened to any of our previous podcasts, we encourage you to do so. We've had some unbelievable guests, uh, civil rights activists, WNBA players, NBA players, Division I coaches. We've had the former president of the NCAA on the podcast. We've had former Super Bowl MVP Doug Williams on the podcast. We've had special dedications to... Uh, Brianna Taylor and the Black Lives Matter movement. We've had Jay Billis and Seth Greenberg from ESPN, former UCLA head coach Steve Lavin, Chris Moore, the CEO of the Positive Coaching Alliance, Kevin Eastman, former NBA coach. Just a, a phenomenal list of who's who in the world of sports. So thanks again for joining Dr. J and myself, Hootie Hoot, and just wanted to give you a little bit of uh, background about who we are. So check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. And uh, if you have any questions, uh, as always, you can always send us an email or DM us. Now back to the Sports Deli. As we wait for the final results from the Georgia runoff tonight, and as we wait the winner of the 2020 Heisman Trophy results also tonight, we are honored to be joined by legendary coach, educator, motivator, and author Bill Curry, who hails to us from College Park, Georgia, where he still maintains his residence, the same hometown as NFL quarterback Cam Newton and rappers Ludacris and Two Chains. Coach Curry was born on the exact same day as Judge Judy, October 21st, 1942, <laughs> while also sharing a birthday with Kim Kardashian. He graduated in 1965. <laughs> from the Georgia Institute of Technology, better known today, as you can see with John's background, as Georgia Tech replayed center for legendary coach Bobby Dodd, who he himself won a national championship at Georgia Tech in 1952. In 1964, he was selected in the 20th round by Green Bay and Hall of Fame coach Vince Lombardi, the last pick of that draft. Before playing 10 years in the NFL for the Packers, the Baltimore Colts, the Houston Oilers, and the Los Angeles Rams. Besides Coach Dodd and Coach Lombardi, he learned the game from Hall of Fame coaching legends like Don Shula and Chuck Knox, and as an NFL center, he snapped the ball to Bart Starr and Johnny Unitas. He was the National Football League Player Association president from 1973 to 1975, an elected position. He was a two-time Pro Bowl center and won four NFL championships, including victories in Super Bowls one and four. He also made it to Super Bowl three before he and the Colts unfortunately lost to Joe Namath and the Jets 16 to seven. He coached football for 36 years, including an SEC championship in 1989 as the head coach for the Alabama Crimson Tide, where he also was named National Coach of the Year and later was the first coach in the history at Georgia State. He worked for ESPN for 10 years as a college football analyst. He served as an athletic director for a year he earned credits in the graduate degree program at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. He is a member of the American Football Coaches Association Ethics Committee. He's written two books, 
One More July, a football dialogue in 2008, and then 10 Men You Meet in the Huddle, praised by author Pat Conroy as the best book ever about the NFL. When he was 10 years old, he told his dad that he was going to marry his elementary school sweetheart, Carolyn Newton, and he did for over 50 years. And she herself is an accomplished author and women's advocate. He's been featured in The Undefeated and ESPN. You can find him on Twitter at Coach Bill Curry. Curry is C-U-R-R-Y at Coach Bill Curry and on his website where he has a plethora of incredible information on there, www.billcurry.net. Coach, a humongous warm welcome to the Sports Deli. Well, it's an honor to be with you, and I'm so happy to know that I share a birthday with so many of those <laughs> very famous people. I had no idea. Uh, I assure you, if we uh, checked out who's the eldest of the group, I would uh, I would carry the day, but that was fun to listen to. Oh, well, you deserve nothing less, Coach. Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm impressed with your background. There we go. We're... We agreed to disagree because I told him you should s- start with the Georgia Institute of Technology background, and, and he he vetoed it. So you put Buzz up there. Well, there you go. <laughs> that's right. When you're the host, when you're the host, you get to do whatever you want to. That's exactly. right. <laughs> I love that chair, Coach. Yeah, it's too comfortable. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. You get my age, you notice stuff like that. <laughs> Well, anything to make your life more and more comfortable. You, you, me, and John have something in common um, in terms of being pioneer. Uh, you were the first cor- coach at the, in the history of Georgia State, and John and I played on the first team in the history of Goucher College, which I'm sure you've never heard of, in Towson, Maryland. So uh, how do you feel about that? Well, you forgot that I played for the Baltimore Colts, so I I know that's, exactly oh, yeah. where Goucher. Oh, yeah, I know where right. Goucher College is. Sure, yeah. uh, we were Baltimore people. We were there six years. It was the best. Those were the best football years of our playing career. Uh, we just had a wonderful group of people. Um, when you're a part of a team in which virtually everybody buys into the team concept. And, and the individuals are not the ones that seem, even though we had very famous individuals, nobody there um, put himself above the team. And that's why we won almost every game the whole time we were there. And then we lost that big one. That, now that's what everybody remembers. But we, we were privileged to be a part of a winning team. And the entire Baltimore, and, and in fact, the, the state of Maryland, the community just embraced us so we have very warm recollections of uh, our time there, and uh, and Goucher was certainly a part of it. That's right. What, what do you attribute the the selflessness of your years there to, Coach? I think that um, it was, it's it's a couple of things. First and most importantly was the quality of the of the people, the quality of the men on the team. And then the second thing is that we had incredible leadership. We had some vocal leaders and we had some quiet leaders. And um, most of the time I was there, we had a great head coach. 
by that, the reason I say that the way I say it is because Don Shula was our head coach when I first went there. I owe him my career. He gave me chance after chance after chance when I didn't deserve it. Gave me an opportunity to keep learning another position to try to reestablish my career, which happened. I ended up uh, staying at offensive center, which is the only thing I really could have played. And then when he moved on, we got lucky and got Don McCafferty to be our coach. And even in that last year, the last year <clears throat> I was there, 1902, um, John Sandusky was moved up as interim coach. And even though he only, he only got to be an interim coach for part of a year, he was another great coach. So we had great leadership in the coaching, as, in the coaching community uh, with our teams as well. So I think all those things figured in. And then I think the uh, Baltimore community had uh, something to do with it because uh, in those days players didn't make big bucks and the Dundalk dock workers, <laughs> they would come in to John Unitas's place and we, us linemen would have beers with the dock workers. And then wow. on Sunday afternoon, you knew they were going to be there because the tickets were probably eight bucks a piece and um, their salary was about the same as ours. And, and we identified, we were all, um, working men. And so it was just a kind of a sense of community that I'm not sure it has existed anywhere else. Um, it was and great in Green Bay when I was there. I got lucky on that too, but it was equally great in Baltimore and in the state of Maryland. Coach, I'm just curious, you know, during that time was also the Baltimore Orioles were unbelievable, you know, with the best pitching staff. I'm curious, did the Colts and the Orioles hang out? We, we dressed in the same locker room. Wow. Now, that, didn't, that didn't mean that we didn't see each other a lot, but when we did see each other, it was, it was such um, a great respect thing. It, it, there was this, <laughs> you're too young to remember, but Frank Robinson was known as the judge. Right. And oh, yeah. Sammy Davis Jr. had a comedy shtick where he, here come the judge, here come the judge. Well, they, the, the Oreos picked up on that, and Frank Robinson settled all their team disputes, and, and apparently his word was was into the into the convers in the the gospel was the gospel when the judge spoke. But yeah. they had wonderful human beings too, and we got to know Brooks Robinson, and we got to know um, Boog Powell, and we got to know Quayar and those mm -hmm. pitchers, you know, Jim Palmer, and yes, they had the most incredible pitching staff, and they were competing for the World Series title every year, and we were competing for the Super Bowl every year. And there was an enormous respect factor uh, built into that uh, system, just walking in and seeing those guys. And I had always loved baseball more than football anyhow, so I was envious. <laughs> <laughs> that's, wow. that's great. You're listening to an interview with Bill Curry, who played for the legendary coach, Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers and later for the Baltimore Colts and Don Shula. He also was the coach at Georgia Tech and Georgia State University and coached in the NFL as well. This podcast is dedicated to Julius Jones, who is on death row in Oklahoma. He has been wrongly convicted and he's been on death row for over two decades. You can go to www.justiceforjuliusjones.com and you can read more about this blatant example of systemic racism 
and social injustice in America. Also remember that the podcast is sponsored by SportRx. You can go to their website at sportrx.com or you can give them a call at 888-831-5817. If you're checking out online, make sure you put in the code during your checkout of Delhi 10 that's D-E-L-I-1-0, Delhi 10 for your 10% discount. Now back to this unbelievably powerful interview with Coach Bill Curry in the Sports Deli. So, Coach, you, you said you owe it all to Don Shula, but, you know, you spent a little bit of time playing for the legendary high name coach, Vince Lombardi. And so maybe you're just being very humble, which you, you always have been. Um, but wh- why do you say that? Because, you know, obviously in Green Bay, you had, you know, some success first, uh, you know, not only learning more about yourself, you know, you'd never been in a huddle, you know, with a black or a brown, you know, African-American person, but, you know, someone took a chance on you and you didn't necessarily expect that. And, um, you know, what do you want, what do you want to say about your experience in Green Bay prior to Baltimore? What happened in Green Bay uh, was the life-changing experience for my spiritual life because while it's true I had never been in a huddle with an African-American person except for a couple of all-star games and that was only for a brief week or so uh, I walk in the locker room and I quickly discover that Vince Lombardi's greatest attribute even as great as a foot as a football coach as he was and as great a man as he was, and as intimidating as he was, and as deeply spiritual as I was to come to learn that he was much later, his greatest attribute was that he would not tolerate racism. He would have put your hat on in a heartbeat. Black lives mattered to Vince Lombardi. And this was 1965. We had more African-American players than anybody in the league. And nobody said anything about it. But you better not say a racist word in our locker room or you'd be gone in a heartbeat. Well, what did that do? What that did was it gave every man in the locker room the freedom to breathe easily and to know, hey, I'm respected here. Vince Lombardi didn't care what color your skin was. He cared a lot if you could play football. He cared a lot if you were a decent human being. And I wasn't quite good enough as a football player to stay on those great Packer teams. They were already being called the greatest team, not the greatest football team, but the greatest teams in the history of professional sport. We won the world title both years that I was there, but I didn't measure up. uh, and, And I agree with that assessment. Now, at the time, I did not. I blamed him, but it was... He, he had to make a decision about who to put on the expansion list. And the New Orleans, New Orleans Saints claimed me uh, off the expansion list. And they were so excited about me that they immediately traded me to the Baltimore Colts. <laughs> I got this phone call from this guy purporting to be Don Shula. And um, of course, I, had, I was crushed because I was leaving the Green World Champions to <clears throat> go to an expansion team. And I thought for a minute this might be one of my buddies messing with me because everybody knew I was all torn up about it and all my ego got involved and I blamed it on Coach Lombardi. It wasn't his fault. It was my fault. But at the time, that's what made sense to me. 
And um, I thought, this, this couldn't possibly be Don Shula. And then I thought, well, maybe I better just play it straight and find out. Well, it was. And he was calling to ask me, if I trade for you, I know you've been a starter, but would you be satisfied with playing special teams? Coach Shula was the first coach that I'm aware of that really put great emphasis on special teams. Well, Bobby Dodd did the same thing. <clears throat> so all of us tech guys were trained in all the special teams. And plus, I was a long snapper. And Shula wanted me to come and play on the kickoff coverage and kickoff return and punt return and all that. And he wanted to know if I'd be okay with that. And my, I'll never forget my response. I said, Coach, I would walk to Baltimore to play for you. And I'll play anything you want me to, anytime, anywhere. And so that's that's how that happened. Wow, that's that's incredible. So let me rewind just a little bit. And so you, your dad worked for the Riches uh, Incorporated. And so they were Jewish. Correct. And so you were Presbyterian. Uh, and you learned at an early age, just because they were Jewish, they didn't just employ your dad. They treated you and you, you know, your father and, and the family, uh, like family, they embraced you. And so you learned at an early age about inclusion, you know, and what a wonderful lesson that must have been. Even though your dad was a little bit uh, matter of fact, when you would ask questions about this, the segregation with the drinking fountains and the bathrooms and things like that, how did you come to form such a deep, passionate, um, forward thinking, um, understanding? of inclusion, appreciating difference and diversity. And, you know, it carried over into every facet of your career and something you felt in your bones your whole life. Well, it started, it definitely started with Riches Incorporated, which was the huge dominant retail force in Atlanta, Georgia. It was the Saks Fifth Avenue. It was the Macy's of Atlanta, Georgia. In fact, it was absorbed by Macy's uh, years later, my father was the sporting goods buyer, and for, to go to downtown Atlanta to me, uh, I was a baseball freak. So to go down there and see all the gloves and the baseball the bats and the stuff that my dad had, and and he could get anybody he wanted to come. Ted Williams might be there one one week. Wow. Uh, Gary Player and Jack Nicholas the next week because my dad so so many of the name brand items that they he could get the advert he could get the big names to come and wow, be at his man. department it was like going to disney world to go to wow. downtown atlanta and go to my father's department store well the boss of riches was mr rich and you wow. sort of expect the boss to act like a boss but mr rich didn't act like a boss he treated us like his own and at christmas time he had parties at his house and gave gifts to the kids of which I was one. And it didn't matter if you were Jewish or Christian to him. So that's where a little bit of an awareness began, but I've still lived in a, in a society that said, you don't go to school with African-American children. You don't play games with African-American children. And, and I meant literally when I got out of college that I had never been in a huddle with an African-American person until I got to the senior bowl and Bob Hayes was there and he was the Olympic champion. We, we quickly became friends and I started wondering all this stuff I've been hearing about how different we are. I don't think so. I think 
I think we're very much the same. And then I get to Green Bay and I had this impending sense of doom because here are now all pros, Willie Davis, Herb Adderley, Dave Robinson, all those guys, all these guys, by the way, are in the Hall of Fame now, Willie Wood. Um, and I just figured they're going to hear my Southern accent, injure me and send me home. And I didn't blame them. We were right in the middle of the civil rights movement and uh, people were marching, cities were burning, not unlike what we're going through now. Um, it, was, it was a nightmare, like the nightmare we're living right this minute where people's lives obviously don't matter to some of our leaders. Uh, that's hard to understand. It's hard to get your arms around, but it was happening. And I thought I would be one of the casualties. Instead of rejecting me, those guys led by Willie Davis embraced me, took time with me, taught me how to act, taught me what to say, what not to say. Literally changed my life. Yeah, why, why do you think they did that, Coach? Because there's a lot of other white guys on the team. Was it just simply your work ethic? And, you know, tell us the story about when you use the, the word that, you know, maybe would have, would have shocked a lot of people, but, you know, you were just sort of ignorant at the time, and, and it was, you know. You mean with Marv Fleming? Right. Oh, yeah. Marv's, Marv went on to earn five Super Bowl rings because he moved from the Packers to the Dolphins. He went from Lombardi to Shula. Who, who had the same idea about <laughs> racism that Lombardi did. Um, and John Mackey took me in when I got to the Baltimore Colts. But um, that's, that's another story. My rookie year, Mark, was, uh, we were sitting at lunch and um, gosh, I wanted to impress him desperately. <clears throat> so I was telling him that I had worked on a construction crew and I, and I had a great guy that was my boss who was an African-American, but I, I, didn't know, I didn't know the term African-American. Nobody used that term. It didn't exist at the time, at least not in our parlance. And I wanted to impress Marvin. So I said, my boss was a colored guy. And I saw his face change and I, I thought, uh-oh, what, what have I done here? He said, your boss was a colored guy? I said, yeah. He said, Bill, what color was he? And I said, okay, Marv, what am I supposed to say? I don't know what to say. Is that wrong? He said, don't say that. Say black guy. Say black man, black guy. This was 1965, and that was preferred at the time. So instead of slapping me in the mouth or getting up and walking away, he took time with me. And then resume the conversation as if nothing had happened and we were mm -hmm. friends again. That was powerful stuff. A guy, a sophisticated guy from Los Angeles. I mean, really sophisticated. Um, that meant a lot. And uh, although Willie Davis was the one who meant the most and um, why did these guys do this? I think number one, if somebody was probably gonna be on the team, if it looked like somebody had a chance to make the team, they wanted each person to understand that on this team, we're going to be together. We may knock the stuffings out of each other every day at practice. We may dog cuss every each other, <laughs> uh, like men do. 
we may get in fist fights, which we did. Um, but when we get in, when we walk in the locker room, we're going to be brothers again. And um, it was mind boggling. It, it was literally life changing. And I tracked Willie Davis down for years, begging him to tell me why he had done it. And he wouldn't tell me. I flew to L.A. one time, where, which is where he had where he had settled, and uh, I took him to lunch. And I said, Willie, all those years ago, it was this last round draft choice, snot-nosed white kid from College Park, Georgia, and you take me aside and spend all that time with me. Why did you do that? You know what he said? He said, I don't know. <laughs> that hurt my feelings. I was expecting him to brag on young Bill Curry and how I had such great potential or something. And, uh, and then about 20 years after that, we kept being thrown together at leadership institutes. We were in somewhere in Aspen, Colorado or somewhere at a leadership institute late at night. And I said, come on, Willie, you have never told me why you were so kind to me all those many years ago and why you took the time to change my life. And I think you knew what you were doing. He said, okay, I, I thought, I've, I've never wanted to talk about it because I thought it would sound like bragging, but it was because of my personal faith. And that's all I'm gonna say about it. We're not gonna talk about it anymore. We're wow. friends, that's enough, period. Wow. End of conversation. Coach, tied into this, into the, into the coaching world, Anthony Lynn got fired yesterday. So that we now have two African-American coaches out of 30 NFL teams. And at the division one level for football, I think there's 12 African-American coaches. Why do you think there's been so little progress in this area when you compare it to other sports that have seemed to do a little bit better? I don't, I don't know why it is more pronounced in our sport, but I do know what, uh, America is America is racist. That's the problem, and I'm not. I'm not accusing any league of being racist. I don't know if we are or if we are not. I know the NFL is trying. I know college colleges are trying. But if you sit down and look at the boards of directors of our companies, and the companies and the, and the boards that run our universities and run our professional teams, you see very few. Um, people of color. And I, I, I really thought men like Willie Davis, and who, who did serve on boards, uh, gosh, throughout his business career, which was just as impressive as his athletic career. Uh, I, I thought that would be the beginning of a sea change. I mean, there would be a, um, a movement that would be obvious and clearly a move toward equality, uh, but it's still a struggle. And then I think there's a, what we're seeing, what we're dealing with uh, the last few years is I think a um, reaction to having elected Obama. Um, people didn't like that. So they're gonna make you pay. Uh, that's a vast oversimplification. And I know that, but I think to try to ignore it is dishonest. You know, we've been on record on this podcast as saying that we believe this is a big white issue. Uh, it's probably the most we've ever heard white people uh, be as vocal uh, collectively 
uh, as uh, any of the movements with Muhammad Ali or Arthur Ashe or Khan, you know, nobody really stood up at the time when Alan took a knee the way that we should have. And, you know, as a result, he's been banned from the league. Um, you know, people will claim it's because of his ability. That's not really the reason, in our opinion. Um, so I, we agree with you that uh, there's a, a lot of racism. And, uh, um, but I, I am hopeful. I, th I know John is as well. I, I, I don't know if you are, but um, because of the amount of white voices that have stood up, but at the same time, I've also been very vocal about the Tom Brady's not being as vocal as they should have when he's when he should when he's still one of the faces of the league, um, the owner um, of the Cowboys, you know, Jerry Jones, Brett Favre's comments, uh, Jake Cutler's comments. Uh, and if you've ever been in a locker room, uh, one of the things Doug Williams said when he was on our podcast is that if a white person ever stands up for a cause like this, that's something that an African-American will never forget, forget everything else. And so I don't know if you want to speak on that, but, um, you know, I think people like us talking about this and, and be a voice when African-Americans have been screaming at the top of mountains for years to have the collective consciousness of America have a better understanding of what it's like to be an African-American and a black and brown person in this country. And we are trying to change the narrative because still there are so many millions of people that are tone deaf in this country from politicians to owners of major sports franchises to uh, your everyday common person uh, in America that thinks that this kind of thing does not apply to them. And it does. It applies to everybody. And we've talked about this a lot on this show, and maybe we haven't talked about it enough, but I know that um, both of us feel passionately about this, and, and uh, I know you do as well, but it, it is imperative when our country's run by rich white men. Thanks for joining us in the Sports Deli. Along with Dr. J, I'm Hootie Hoot. You're listening to an interview with Bill Curry, legendary coach and player in the NFL and in college. He played for Georgia Tech in the 60s, as well as the Green Bay Packers and Baltimore Colts. In 1973, he played for the Houston Oilers and finished his career with the Los Angeles Rams in 1974. He coached at Georgia Tech with the Green Bay Packers, went back to Georgia Tech, coached at Alabama, where he was an SEC Coach of the Year, a National Coach of the Year when he won an SEC championship with the Crimson Tide. He coached at Kentucky from 1990 to 1996 and then was the first coach in the history at Georgia State from 2008 until 2012. Now back to this unbelievable interview with Coach Bill Curry in the Sports Deli. It's so obvious and it's so... Um, and the dishonesty is so obvious. When we say things like Kaepernick can't play, oh, come on. I was a broadcaster when Kaepernick started his first game, and they went up to Boise, and it was like watching a genius. At, I mean, it, it was, I've never seen a young quarterback play like that, and he got better and better and better and better, and he was going to be one of the great ones, 
That was, that's my opinion. And so for him to not have a job is a blatant statement, screams to the world, hey, uh, you cross us and the president calls you an SOB, you're finished, period, bingo. Well, the same thing happened to the presidents of the Players Association when we had strikes. I was yeah. one of them. Yeah. All right, so yeah. that had, but I, but because Carol Rosenblum had been my owner and had gone to the LA Rams, I got to work for one more year. Um, but John Mackey did not. Now, how do you cut the greatest tight end of all time? <laughs> because he's president of the union. How do you do that? Well, you just do it because you're in charge. And um, we can yell and scream all we want to, but it, until there is a movement of white people making rules for white people and then following the rules, nothing good's going to happen. Go ahead, John. I was going to say, Coach, do you think there needs to be they try, what's your take on the Rooney rule? And do you think some of that needs to be implemented at the division one, at least at division one college football level? I think that's a great idea. And I, and I was uh, very impressed with um, Mr. Rooney in our, in our, he was on the owner's committee when mm -hmm. we were seeking to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement in 1974, 73 and 74. It was an awful long time ago, but I was deeply impressed with his sincere concern for the players. And uh, we could tell, I mean, we sit there across the room, we could tell who cared about us and who didn't. And so when he proposed things, um, I, I believe that the players took it very seriously and I believe the owners did. And I, I think there's been a, a sincere effort by some of the people involved. Obviously, it hasn't worked the way he thought it might. And I wish I wish uh, he were still around. Yeah. Uh, John, you have a follow-up? No, just a, and, and uh, you know, what's your take? I mean, when you the, the two things that drive me nuts. I'm a huge college football fan, coach. I'm a big yeah. And Bill, he's I, not just a, he's not just a huge college football fan. He's the guy that if you walk down the street, he'll notice anybody over the last seven decades from the back of their head. So, so don't, don't let him fool you about so, just being only a college football fan. But and I think it ties into this a little bit. Maybe you'll see it, you know, when, you know, how do we, the buyout packages that these coaches are getting and then the search processes, I'm looking at Auburn. I mean, you, you, you pay a coach $21 million to leave, and then, you're, then you go get the guy from Boise State. I mean, it's not exactly a huge pivot, if you will, in the sense of changing what you're going to do. And at the same time, you know, not really opening up the process to get new blood in, at least to try it, at least on the interview side. And going back to the Rooney, one of the reasons Mike Tomlin has that job is that the Steelers brought him in, and he was not the first candidate, but he blew them away in the interview. Um, and that's what, and that's the kind of opportunities because a lot of these associate athletic directors then go to the Nevadas of the world. And I don't think the, I don't think the college football world really understands the impact of at least showcasing more of these assistant coaches during the interview process. And it may not be for that job. It could be for the next job. Well, Auburn would probably defend themselves. I don't know. I certainly don't speak for Auburn. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
that, that they would gag on on that notion. <laughs> but they have an African American athletic director, right, right, who made the decision, and so that might be a uh, a point that they would make that that they are sincerely seeking to literally be objective and choose the right person, the right man each time. Right. And here's an example. Here's here's a here's faith I, in action. But I think what it's saying is at the what which I mean the the amount of money that's being paid to have coaches leave at a time in the middle of a pandemic that all schools are suffering. And I know it comes from different budgets. I get it. it's the fundraising side. But what's your take on all that? Is it just, have we gotten to the the level of absurdity um, in regards to the separation of the haves and the haves-nots? I feel very strongly about it. I wish I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, wish, I wish I had been paid that much to go away. I got paid to go away, but nothing like that. Now, it's, it's, I know you're not trying to be funny, and I, I should yeah. not make a joke. That's it, it's but, true. That's fine. Um, the day, and I can't remember exactly when it was, the day that we began, we being, I, I characterize myself as a college coach veteran. Sure. That's my background. I coached four years as an assistant in the NFL, thanks to Bart Starr, for whom I would have done anything, and I would to this day. Uh, God bless him, God rest his soul. Uh, if we had kept Bart around, things would have been different. He would have made a difference in the league. And if he could have won a little more and become the, the legend, the next legend in Green Bay, which we all wanted him to be, I think that would have made a difference. I honestly believe that would have made a difference in the league, but I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm not objective about him at all. Mm -hmm. He's like my big brother. But um, I think the day that we began to compete with the NFL for coaches' salaries, that was the day, the spiral. You can describe it as an upward spiral in terms of sheer uh, escalation of the graph, or you, a downward spiral in terms of the moral construct of what we do as coaches with our players. And none of us is blameless. When I was overpaid and we were, I was in the first wave of coaches that were overpaid. Oh, we didn't turn it down, Carolyn and I. So I can't sit here and say that, uh, that, any, that I'm blameless. I think we're all to blame for participating in the process. On the other hand, uh, it is a business and uh, it generates billions of dollars. And, um, when you generate that kind of money and the head coach is the focal point and you're expected to go to every cotillion club and every yellow jacket club. I mean, when I look at that thing behind you, I think about yellow jacket clubs and how many I had to go to. And I love those guys, but you're out there and there are 42 guys in Valdosta, Georgia. You got to get them rah, rah, get a standing ovation. Then you got to drive three and a half hours back to Atlanta. Then you got to practice at 5 a.m. the next morning, then you got to get ready, get the kids to go to class. And I mean, it's, so you do feel like you have earned it. 
and just in terms of the sheer hours and the pressure that is upon you. And maybe that's rationalization, um, but that's the way coaches justify it in, in our minds. And then, Coach, pivoting to your experience at Georgia State and that as a startup program, where do you think the future is for the Georgia States of the world over the next five to 10 years in college football? With where the account, where these schools' budgets are because of COVID and other things, uh, and going forward, and are we really going to have the Big Five almost at a different conference level, as a, maybe having their own commissioner and then everybody else? I mean, or or is it the other way? Is can we get to football being like basketball that a Georgia State can upset an Alabama, you know, in in, in a some version of an NCAA tournament? Well, I think. Um... Georgia State's going to do well in large measure because it's Georgia State. Um, that may sound absurd, but there are 53,000 students in downtown Atlanta. Um, there are more um, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies from Georgia State than there are from Georgia Tech and Georgia combined. Meaning when Georgia State starts to look good, which it has already done, Georgia State's already been to Knoxville and beat Tennessee. So they have, we tried twice with Alabama and got blown out both times. The first, the first time was our first year. So we knew what that, we had an idea what was gonna happen there. But, <laughs> right. Um, and, but when, when we start to compete with those guys, um, then our big time donors begin to see the program differently. And this is the crass part. This is, this is um, and, and also when we produce the graduation rates, which is what we've been doing since the very beginning, and they graduate in meaningful majors, and everybody who's been a little, even a small part of this knows that we started without a jock strap. We did not have a chin strap. We did not have a football. We didn't have an office. We didn't have a telephone. We didn't have a practice field. We had nothing. Now, a few years later, we're in minor bowl games. We got the most beautiful stadium in Atlanta, pure fortuitous, nothing but luck that the Braves moved out and um, President Mark Becker worked a deal to get that stadium and they've renovated it. And it's one of the most beautiful football stadiums I have ever seen. It seats 44,000 people, which is perfect. perfect. Uh -huh. And it is gorgeous. And it's right off the freeway coming in from the airport. Hmm. And so when I went to a reunion, not this past season, but the season before, this very sort of cynical um, one of the big time guys is on all the boards. He's, he's on the fundraising board and all that. He said, uh, when we started football at Georgia State, we had raised, and I'm not, can't, I'm not at liberty to, to say the exact amounts. We had raised uh, X millions <laughs> of dollars the previous year. Right. I just want you to know, and I want to thank you. I thought he's going to hug me, and he wasn't a hugging type. <laughs> so very wealthy, rich southern guy. He said, "This next year is going to be four x, meaning it has doubled, redoubled, four times since we started the football program." So the way the the school evaluates these things is 
how much money is it going to bring to us? And when I looked up at Obama's second inauguration parade, marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, playing the Georgia State fight song, which did right. not exist prior to the football game, there was our band hmm. in the awesome. president's parade. Awesome. Now, how, what does that say to America? So Georgia State's going to be fine, but I think there are a lot of the smaller schools that are going to struggle with the financial demands of, of keeping pace with the recruiting and the recruiting, the, the thing that bothers me, the, there are two things that bother me the most about football right now. And that number one is recruiting because it's, it's, it's insane. We've created another professional league is what we've done. You can transfer most anytime you want to play mm -hmm. for anybody, go play without, without being penalized a year. And, and, and then the second thing is the rules and how, how do you call roughing the passer you can't call roughing the passer i mean almost anything you do is roughing the passer i don't want the quarterbacks to be hit either but you got to be able to tackle them to the ground without being called for roughing so the those are the things that i know i'm rambling but okay. that's the stuff that i think about so real quick you're not a fan of the transfer portal coach <laughs> uh no <laughs> i can understand so, Coach, uh, before we uh, get to a, a couple of final things, um, John and I wanted to ask you about uh, two people that are having a big impact in college football, Deion Sanders and obviously Nick Saban going for national championship number 18 um, next Monday. And so, uh, obviously, Deion is making headlines. He's getting a lot of three and four, you know, star recruits and a five-star recruit and, and transfers and, uh, you know, you obviously coached at Alabama and, you know, the pressures of, of being there. And, you know, Nick, uh, you know, didn't have success everywhere he went, but he's had uh, unbelievable success there. And you could argue that you could pay him $25 million a year and that wouldn't be enough for someone like him. But talk a little bit about Dion at a historical black college and Coach Saban at, um, you know, uh, a historical university with so much history. Um, and, and the differences between the two, but what are the possible similarities there? Well, the similarities are obvious. Uh, it, they're great at what they do. They can get a bunch of young people to come together as one and play their guts out better than the other guy can. Do they have better players? Probably. Uh, Almost certainly at Alabama, you do. I don't know about Dion's guys, but they're probably better than a lot of the people they play. But they're not enough better that you win all the time, every single game. Uh, those coaches, I, I, was a, I was a rookie analyst for ESPN in 1997. I'm pretty sure it was 97. Might have been 98. But there was a young coach at Michigan State named Nick Saban. And I said on the air, Watch this guy. They're getting ready to beat somebody that they should not beat. And the reason is because he's going up and down the sideline. And he's getting in every single player's face. And he's going to make them do something that they didn't believe they could do. And he did it. And they won. And I got goosebumps. I, I said at the time, this guy's going to be a great coach. You could see it then. You didn't have to be smart. I wasn't smart. I could, anybody that played football as long as I did, I know what a great coach looks like. 
and you could see it a long time ago. So he's got that, and uh, Dion's got that. So uh, there's some coaches that I mean they could they could go coach a girls um, cross country team, and they'd probably win the state championship <laughs> in that too. Right. I'm serious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, coach, uh, we'll leave the stage for you after we're done with our, our rapid fire to talk about anything that maybe you want to share with, with the world. We've been in 14 countries so far. And again, we were so honored that you shared some of your incredible memories and thoughts on so many important issues going on today. And we hope that today's vote uh, turns out uh, the way that we all three of us hope it will. You're listening to the final segment of the Sports Deli podcast with Coach Bill Curry, who played for Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers and Don Shula of the Baltimore Colts. And congratulations to Devonta Smith, wide receiver from Alabama, for winning the 2020 Heisman Trophy. And congratulations to the other finalists, Kyle Trask from Florida, Mac Jones, also from Alabama and Trevor Lawrence from Clemson. We hope that the election goes in the direction of the Democrats. Uh, the final uh, votes are coming in right now. The Republicans have the lead uh, at the time of this podcast's publication, uh, but we want to continue to do everything we can with our platform to get people to be a little bit more educated and have a greater level of sensitivity towards the reality of systemic racism and the various layers of it and how we can all come find some common ground in this country to bridge the gap between the two different sets of laws that currently exist for black and white America. And one final reminder that we are dedicating this podcast for, as you can see on my shirt, hashtag justice for Julius, for Julius Jones. There was just a 131-mile walk from the Capitol uh, in Oklahoma to the prison where Julius Jones is being held currently on death row for being racially profiled and unjustly accused of murder. And he's been in prison for over 20 years. You can go to the website, www justice for f-o-r justice for julius j-u-l-i-u-s jones j-o-n-e-s www.justiceforjuliusjones.com and there's a three-part series um, discussing his case that you can watch on the website and again we want to make sure that we educate people out there about systemic racism and social injustice, not only in America, but around the world. And this is one case where professional athletes have gotten involved, uh, celebrities, and we're doing everything we can on this podcast to educate people about this. And there are many other people as well uh, as a result of uh, uns unsubstantiated witness accounts, um, uh, juries, that were predominantly white, that did not uh, have uh, a good representation of African Americans on the juries, um, DNA evidence that was suppressed or have not yet been tested because at the time it was not available. So we want to make sure that uh, everything is done to exonerate Julius Jones. 
For Dr. J, I'm Hootie Hoot. Now back to the final segment right here in the Sports Deli. Um, answer these questions as best you can. And, uh, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. All right. So if you were not a football coach and broadcaster, what would you have been? I think you already answered this a little bit, but. A pitcher for the New York Yankees. Right. I knew it was going to be baseball related. All right. Uh, Elvis, Dean Martin, or Frank, Frank Sinatra? I didn't get real excited about any of those guys. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. They were good. I mean, of course, they were wonderful. They were great artists. But um, I, I had the privilege of seeing Sammy Davis Jr. in person. Wow. wow. That was life changing. He's the greatest performer that ever lived. And when you started calling those names, I said, come on, let Sammy be in there. But Sammy <laughs> Davis good, Jr. Good call. No, but is, that, is it true from your recollection that when Frank Sinatra went to Vegas, he wouldn't play there if Sammy Davis Jr. wasn't allowed to perform there. And that's the reason why Sammy Davis, you know, got, you know, his, his big uh, break. I read that and um, just prayed to God that it's true. I, I just pray that it's true. It's one of those stories that you hope, you hope to goodness that Sinatra had that much guts. And I, and I think he probably did. Probably did. I know he loved Sammy and the vice and Sammy loved him back. All those guys, that Rat Pack group, that was yeah. quite a crew. But meetings and 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 then plus just through circumstances, and, and it was just a freaky thing that I got to know Sammy personally, and he was just oh, wow. a beautiful human being. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, okay, um, pistachios, pecans, or peanuts? Oh, pecans. <laughs> I'm I'm from Georgia, man. That's right. <laughs> I love well, all those nuts. I love all of those you mentioned, but pecans far and away the best. I know sort of the next one then. Peaches or plums? Peaches. That's right. <laughs> That's easy too. That's easy. Lawrence Welk or Hee Haw? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would put it on snooze for both. But uh, <laughs> Junior Sample cracked me up. So I, I, would, uh, I, would, I would watch Hee Haw just to wait for the next time Junior Sample would walk out there because he, he blew me away. Well, the next one definitely wasn't wasn't going to be a snooze. Okay, Honeymooners, they're all in the family. Oh, my gosh. I watched them both religiously, but I got to go with Bunker. I, Archie, <laughs> Archie was beautiful, he was especially beautiful. when I found out he wasn't really like that. I know. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Abbott and Costello, I Love Lucy, or the Three Stooges? I Love Lucy. Wow. Larry Curley Lucy or and the, Lucy and the Chocolate Factory, the greatest, <laughs> sequence, the greatest comedy sequence in history. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. All right, Larry Curley or Moe? <laughs> oh, I guess Moe. Mo <laughs> That's great. All right, The Old Professor, Casey Stengel or Bobby Cox? Well, Bobby Cox did so much for Atlanta, but Casey would entertain the, the nation for decades. How could I? That's that one's impossible. That's a dead heat. <laughs> That's a dead heat. Rocky Marciano, Muhammad Ali, Joe Lewis, or Mike Tyson? Ali. Right. Ali. Muhammad I, Ali. Right. He's another one who had a, a marked impact on Carolyn and me, the way he treated my wife was a beautiful thing and, and 
if we've got two minutes, I've got a great story about him. Please, sure. please share. I have a friend who's an intern at the United Nations and he hosted Ali the day he spoke to the UN. And when they came out of the UN, somebody at the school board had found out that Ali was there and these yellow school buses started pulling up and children started pouring out, hundreds, then thousands of New York school children to see the champ. And my friend, Rich Lapchick, um, who's also a hero in the civil rights movement, he said to Ali, okay, I can get you out the back, let's go. Ali said, don't you move. He said, Rich said, I stood there with tears in my eyes and watched him touch every single child and shake their hand and sign their paper and spend time with them. That's my Ali story. That's great. amazing. Dr. Dr. Lapchick was on our podcast as well. He was amazing. He's a beautiful man. I went to a movie a few years ago and um, in DC and went to the to one theater movie theater and out and there was a long line to get in and out walks Muhammad Ali. And this is probably in the 80s. You've never seen people who valued their spot in the line for the movie get off their spot. And he, <laughs> and he just, I mean, children, adults had to be in like a man in a second. And to your point, incredibly nice. And his team, his entourage, this is when he was getting up there in age and his disease. His entourage had pre-autographed items, um, wow. papers to hand out to everybody. And you do the research, and he actually signed them, but he had, it took him a long time, so he couldn't yeah. sign them sign them with everybody there. But he wanted to, to your point, to touch everybody there. Wow. And he went out the yeah. front. He could have gone out the back. It was back later, but he knew what was out. I mean, it was a. But I just remember everyone's like, "That's Muhammad Ali," and boom, everybody. I mean, yeah. you know, it was unbelievable. There's only one of those. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Coach Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods. Oh, wow. That's another dead heat. I mean, good <laughs> gosh. Uh, I got, I got to say, uh, I got to say Tiger, who's just uh, beat all the odds. And he's recently beaten the odds again in a thousand different ways and so public and so obviously embarrassed. And then to come back and to uh, do what he's done is for an athlete, that's, what he's done is virtually impossible this time. Yeah, incredible. Uh, dishes or vacuuming? Well, I'm married to a scholar, and uh, sometimes <laughs> my redneck buddies that I grew up with, they call me and say, you know what, Carolyn's getting out of line. She's all this women live liberal stuff. She thinks women ought to have a vote, you know, stuff like that, Curry. You need to talk to her. So I tell them, and this is the truth, I will. I'll sit her down and give her a real good lecture as soon as I finish these dishes. <laughs> here's here's what i want you to know i do the dishes every single night at our house wow wow yeah. you work you wear gloves heck no <laughs> old school that's what i'm talking about <laughs> bing crosby nat king cole billy holiday or duke ellington oh jeez, that's terrible to make people make it. bing crosby <laughs> All right. Uh, famous phrases from the 50s that we don't really say anymore. Cruising for a bruising or knuckle sandwich or burn rubber. <laughs> <laughs> oh, knuckle sandwich. 
famous phrases of the 2000s, bling or dope? Bling. Right, okay. Uh, that's fire or peace out? Yeah, peace out, peace out. <laughs> yeah, peace out. There we go. Uh, all right. French toast, get ready, John. French toast, okay. pan French toast pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Go so ahead. coach, you, I think you'll appreciate this being in Georgia. I went to grad school at the University of South Carolina. You might not appreciate that, but um, the I got a, I became a huge fan of Waffle House, and so anytime yeah. I travel, I intentionally will segment. I don't care how nice I could be staying at the Ritz. I'm going to go find the Waffle House <laughs> to go back, and I tell Hoot all the time. Hoot, just, you know, he's a West Coast guy, so he's he's got the in and out, but he doesn't have a Waffle House. Um, <laughs> And I tell him all the time about the 825 All-American at Waffle House. And you get your, your hash, your waffles, your coffee, your eggs. But then the big secret that people out there should know is if you, know the, if you ask the waitress, can you upgrade? It's not on the menu. You get another waffle or two for like a dollar more. It's the greatest deal ever. <laughs> and, and I've told who when, when I break loose of this thing and COVID's done, my, my goal in life is to be doing the podcast from a booth in the Waffle House closest to where our guest is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, Georgia Tech man, a Georgia Tech man was the founder of Waffle House. Oh, what? I didn't know. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Oh, that, that doesn't surprise me, though. But that's pretty funny. That's good. That's amazing. Okay, coach, and then we'll let you go. Brady, Bart Starr, Johnny Unitas, or Joe Montana? Well, the first two. Uh, I didn't play with Joe. I played with the other two. And when uh, and I'm always yeah. asked to uh, pick one of them. And here's my answer for that. Uh, if I could name one that's better than the other, I would not. And I can't. That's your answer. There you go. Got it. I will Got tell it. you this though. You or I would march into hell following either one of them with total confidence that we were going to come out fine. Yeah. Well, it's probably the same answer for Belichick and Lombardi then, right? So I should skip that question. <laughs> well, Bill's just a buddy. I, I mean, Bill's a friend and actually he's a nice guy off the field. And uh, Coach Lombardi, even though I did not understand him and did not like him, when I played for him, he was another life changer and I owe him enormously. And I was um, compelled to go to his hospital and apologize to him Aww. because I had misunderstood him and he was very gracious. So uh, Coach Aww. Lombardi. Wow. Nick Saban, Bear Bryant, Joe Paterno or Urban Meyer? Well, Coach Bryant. I had another, I had an, it's ironic that I had all these experiences that uh, I played in a game where Coach Bryant was my coach. It was called the Coaches All-America game. And our head coach, uh, they divided up the squads, uh, East and West, the American Football Coaches Association, and they played an all-star game in the summer. And our, uh, when I played in it, we played in Buffalo. Uh, our head coach was Eric Parsegan and our line coach was Bear Bryant. Wow. And I was, I was the starting wow. center for coach wow. Bryant. Uh, we didn't have too much talent. We just had Butkus and Staubach and Ken Willard and <laughs> we wow. were loaded. Right. They had Gail Sayers 
Gail Sayers and um, wow. other assorted guys from the West. And um, it was a great experience, but uh, Coach Bryant and I really had a great relationship. And when they had it one week, that's probably the reason I went to Alabama. Coach, I got to interject. I got to interject. I know we don't know what it is. I've always wondered this. You were around playing at that time. How do the Bears have Dick Butkus and Gail Sayers and they're not very good? I know they needed a quarterback, but I mean, come on. I think that's a great question. And and, and they had other good, really good players. Yeah. I, you're you're th- you're saying those names, but I'm thinking about Doug Atkins and Dick Evie and um, um, Ed Obradovich. The, the, they had a good front four. George Seals, I don't know if they had a corner I, named J.C. Caroline that was as good as anybody. I don't know why they weren't better. I, really I mean, if I, if I remember correctly, weren't Butkus and Say- Gail Sayers were in the same draft, right? Were they? Yeah, we all played together in the all- I mean, think about that. Game. Think of that if you're watching the NFL draft now and you get Dick Butkus and Gail Sayers in one draft class. That's a uh, decades yeah. class. Yeah, that'll never happen again, though. <laughs> I know, too, too many teams. Too yeah, I, I know. They know too much now to let that happen. I know. Oh, anyways. I all right, all right uh, three more, Coach. Kirk, Kirk Herbstreet, Chris Fowler, or Lee Corso? Herbstreet. Now, I love all three of them, but Kirk, Kirk, is, a, Kirk, Kirk is unique. He's really, he's really priceless. Did you learn anything uh, from being at ESPN from coaches that you didn't know before you got there that you were just, uh, you know, blown away by, or you, you, you th- maybe you had an impression about somebody and you learned a lot from, from being in the booth? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, over, over and over and over, people I had the wrong idea about, I found out they were a wonderful person or, or vice versa, <laughs> or learned the opposite, but... Wow. Uh, yes, I mean, because you spend a lot of time with the coaches. I sat down with the young quarterback at Michigan that was about to make his first start in college. He was a sophomore. He really didn't look very good at practice. Didn't have a strong arm. He didn't have great feet, uh, but he had eyes. And when he looked in my eyes, I felt Unitas and Star. I swear I said that to Dave Barnett, our play-by-play guy. His name was Tom Brady. Wow. So, I mean, I got to meet all kind of wow. fascinating. You, I could go on and on with those stories. Coach, just to, uh, tying into that, do you think there's some advantages? So let's say a coach either gets fired or decides to step down. And instead, and sometimes you see this, they go down to a lower division, like uh, Willie Tackett, you know, um, going from Florida State to Florida Atlantic. Would they maybe better served taking a step back, maybe going into the booth for a year or two and getting a better feel for everything going on seeing what goes on at different places and maybe then getting back in? I think they might if they liked it. A lot of people, a lot of the guys don't like to sit up there. Okay. I love the football evaluation part, but I did not like being pushed by management. The criticism I got was we want you to be harder on the coaches. We want you to criticize the coach. I said, well, you need to get somebody else then because I'll criticize the call. I'll call, I'll criticize the play that was called. I will not start saying this guy's a bad coach because his board, his alumni, they're listening. Right. And they'll fire him because some idiot sitting up in the booth said he was a bad coach, including Bill Curry. I mean, so that's a, that's a tricky um, 
tight wire that you walk. Gotcha. Coach, I just want to state for the record that, that John and Gordon, when he was with us, they, they didn't know about this rapid fire segment of the podcast. And you see how John's jumping in now. He's all about it. You see, see how he is? Yeah. All right. Uh, last couple. Uh, is Tom Brady going to win his seventh Super Bowl first, or will Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, or Russell Wilson win their second? Aaron Rodgers will win his second. Wow. Good call. All right, Dick Vitale or Bill Walton? <laughs> Dick Vitale. All right, so this is the last question, Coach. This is, this is the most important one of the evening, and you've been so gracious with your time. So do you have a position on your coaching staff as a special assistant to the head coach? Do you hire John or me? Yeah. <laughs> God bless America. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. Now, I'd right, have coach. to take you. I'd have to take you both. There you yes. go. Well, John, I'll give you 60% of the salary. I'll just take 40. I, I just need a nice dorm room on campus and access to the dining hall, and I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Unlimited access to the dining hall with a dorm room on campus, and I, I can survive. Yeah, we'll we'll let you in the dining hall, but not you're not going to get access to the computers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, Coach, we talked about a lot of things. We're, we're so honored that you were with us. Is there anything else that you that's important to you? You know, your dad trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat to kill Nazis. You know, you, you've been uh, part of a lot of different things, civil rights, uh, racial reckonings now. Um, you know, you're, you're an amazing person, an amazing husband and father. Um, but we want to leave the stage for you to, to finish the show. Well, um, I don't, I, I do not go around and uh, bump a Bible or quote scripture, but uh, this, this could be whether you're a faith, you're a person of faith or not, but to him whom much is given, much will be required. And um, that fits me. I've been given so much access to so many great human beings, and we've touched on many of them here tonight that I have an obligation to share the best of each of them that I possibly can. And as these stories are brought out by wonderful people like you guys, I get the privilege of doing something like this a couple of times a week and I love doing it. So I would, I would urge everybody to do that. Look at the good stuff that's happened to you in life and see if you can't find a way to share it. Uh, next week, I'm going to be speaking to a grammar school class uh, somewhere in Michigan uh, over Zoom, and I'm going to get a chance to tell them how wonderful they can be if they want to, and then I'm going to tell them some of the things that they could do uh, because I've seen great human beings develop their greatness, and um, everybody has greatness of spirit, and so to encourage young people or even not so young people, not to give up in the face of some of the nightmares we're dealing with right now, um, but just to continue and find your way to make a great contribution in your life can mean so, so much, just like you guys are doing right now. Thank you, Coach. Well, well said, Coach. Well, we uh, hope you stay healthy and continued success with, with uh, all your endeavors that you, you know, continue to be a part of from here on out. 
and the utmost love and respect to you and your family. And thanks for joining us in the sports deli. Well, thanks. Same to you. Right Thank back you, to you. All right. Take care, coach. Bye now. Don't be so hard on each other. <laughs> well, real quick, coach. Alabama or Ohio State Monday night? Oh, my gosh. I think it, uh, I think it depends on um, the health of the Ohio State quarterback. Uh, he was hurt bad. Oh, that I was, was brutal. Worried. I, I, I was really worried about a kidney um, injury, and I still am. I, I'm, I'm sure their doctors will do a good job of examining him, but, but I think if he's full speed, we'll have we'll have one of the great championship games ever. Okay. So much for that number 11 ranking. All right, Coach. <laughs> Take care. Yeah, Dabo, Dabo would love to speak with you about that. <laughs> I'm sure he would. <laughs> Take, take care, care coach. Okay, you too. Appreciate Thanks, it so man. much. All right, right take on. care. You hear what he said at the end? He called us men. I know. I don't think anyone's ever called me that. That's no, like me. that's so perfect for him. That's like so old school. Yeah, that was yeah. good. He, he was he was amazing. Wow, all the, yeah. the, the story. I mean, that's you talk about. Not many people are going to be able to tell those stories for very long. So just, okay, just incredible. All right, I appreciate you. Yeah, I'll talk to you later, man. All right, thanks, brother. Yep. Special thanks again to Coach Bill Curry, who joined us here in the Sports Deli and shared some of his incredible experiences and perspectives on football and America. Remember, you can always send us an email to thesportsdeli at gmail.com, or you can DM us on Instagram at Mike Hootner and on Twitter at Michael Hootner. Please mask up. And remember, Black Lives Matter. Until next time, thanks for joining us in the Sports Deli. This has been Season 2, Episode 1. Peace.